so authentic in his relationship with God that God is able to take such an amazingly horrible day and he completely turns it around. And we're going to, as I read this to you, you're going to see a pivotal moment in David's day in which he does something that honestly, if you're, if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss it. But it is so pivotal from that point on, everything changes. Now, some of you today, tonight, you're not just having like the worst day ever. It's, it's like a season in your life. And there is, there is nothing for anyone to judge because God's, God delights in being able to pour out his grace in those moments of your life. And for you, as you submit to this grace that you don't, I'm not saying that you understand, but as you submit to it, God is able to do something in your life that we're going to see glimpses of here in David's life, okay? We're gonna, I'm, I'm calling this pivotal moments. God, gives, God has given me pivotal moments in my life. He's given you these, but we're going we're gonna to find out and kind of unwrap what this pivotal moment was. What did David actually do? Because whatever he did, I want to walk in that. Are you ready? First Samuel chapter 30 with verse 1. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Let me just say this. David had been traveling north with the Philistines. He'd been in Philistine territory for a little over a year. While he's with the Philistines, he is at least out of, uh, out of Saul's crosshairs, and Saul is no longer seeking his life. I'm not going to get into all the details, except now he is being invited by the king, by Achish, king of Gath, to travel with the Philistine army north to fight King Saul, the Israelites. Now, I have my personal opinion on this, and I'm sure that every theologian in the world practically does. Some say David has fallen away from the Lord. I don't believe that. I believe that he truly does have a plan. I think the Philistine leaders figured it out, and they said, uh-uh, not send him back home. So they've gone north about a three-day journey. They turn around, and it takes them on the third day. They finally arrive back to Ziklag. That's where their families, children, homes, and everything are, okay? Now, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Ravine where some stayed behind. For 200 were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. <coughs> they gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of the cake excuse me, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? 
He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. He raided the Negev of the Kirathites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb. And we, bur- and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master or I will take you down to and, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekite. I want you to underline that word people everything david recovered everything the amalekites had taken including his two wives nothing was missing young or old boy or girl plunder or anything else that had been taken that had taken that they had taken david brought everything back he took all the flocks and herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying this is david's plunder Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow and who were left behind at the Besor Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers. You must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David arrived at Ziklag, He sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. He sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Jatir, to those in Aror, Sifmoth, Eshtemoah, and Rakal, to those in the towns of the Jeremielites and the Kenites, and to those in Hormah, Bor Ashan, Aphek and Hebron, and to those in all the other places where David and his men had roamed. I want you to see something here before I get to this pivotal moment. And I'm only going to, I'm going to breeze right over the pivotal moment because I'm going to come back to it. (laughs) But understand that David has faced this incredible tragedy. He comes back, he'd been gone for anywhere from, if you count them, for probably a little closer to six days, three up, three back. And when he comes back, understand his men have been following David for a number of years, ever since the cave of Adullam, which was probably up at that point the hardest day in David's life. He has one that's even harder, I believe, in Ziklag. But these men have been following him. They trust him. They trust his leadership. He made or took a big risk when he said okay to King Achish and went with the army of the Philistines. I believe David had a plan. It backfired, but while he's gone for those four to six days, the Amalekites, by the way, that Saul did not kill earlier, now are raiding the Negev. The Negev is the southern portion of Judea. It's more of a wilderness, not a whole lot of cities, Israelite cities in there, some. (coughs) And they're attacking cities in Judah, but they're also attacking Philistine cities. And these Philistine cities have a lot of wealth in them, so you know. By wealth, I don't necessarily mean gold and silver, though I'm sure there were, but I'm talking more about just the, you know, Donkeys, camels, horses, that kind of thing. And they plunder them. David comes to Ziklag and his city is burned. Everyone has been taken. Every man who is married has lost his wife, 
any children that he had, he had gone. For, for all they know, they've been killed. They don't know for sure, but all they know, they, they, could, they could be taken. They could be sold to Egypt as slaves. This horrified the men. They are ready to stone David. David, you know what? Whatever your plans are, I mean, great, but you know what? You, you crossed the line. <clears throat> we have followed you, and you have failed. My livelihood, my wife, my children, gone, probably dead, sold as slaves, who knows? But I'll probably never see them again. And it says that David included all the men wept aloud. They wept. I'm sure they fell on their knees and they just wept. Traditionally, you, you tear your clothes. You generally take dust and pour it on your head. They are broken men. And they've been following this man for years. And it's like, we've had enough. We're done. And they're ready to kill David. And David now is at a crossroads in his life. Okay, God, <laughs> this is it. I don't understand what's going on in my life right now. I thought you were kind of transitioning me, doing something, but now you have abandoned me. Now, it doesn't say that, but let's understand David is heartbroken. Men ready to stone him, weeping aloud. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where it, your life got so hard that you wept aloud. Maybe you were in the quiet of your bedroom and the people outside your bedroom could hear you. Mike, Juliana, are you okay? Have you ever, you know, a mom or a dad knocking, are you okay? And, but you're so heartbroken. Something happens. Here's the pivotal moment. But David found strength in God. Something happened right there. Now, I'm going to come back to that because the text doesn't elaborate and tell us, but we're going to find out what, what happened. Track, track me. We're going to find out what happened. Because I want to know, how did you find strength in God? Because you're ready to throw in the towel, and suddenly he says, okay, <clears throat> we're going to seek God. Somehow he rallies the men. And I believe that the first thing that he did was seeking God, and he said, men, I just found out from God that he is gonna he's going to lead us, and we are going to destroy the Amalekites, and we're going to take back from them everything that they have stolen. Church, wouldn't you like God to restore to you everything that the enemy has taken from you? Now, this is what happens. So David rallies the men, and, and it's, I, I can only imagine, it's like, okay, David, one last chance. We're not going to stone you now, but if this doesn't work out, <laughs> line up, because we got big stones. We're ready. This better work. And so they follow him, and they find an Egyptian. He's sick. He hasn't, since he was sick for three days, he hadn't eaten or drunk. And they're just like, okay, just, we're going to nurture you back to health. I don't know, a couple of hours, how, I don't know how long it took, maybe the next morning. But okay, so what's up? Why are you here? I think they have a feeling what's going on. And the guy says, you know what? Tells them the story. I know. The guys that you're looking for, the Amalek, I know where they are. I can lead you to them. And so he leads them leads David and his 400 men. Because understand, he had 600, but 200 of them are just too exhausted. Which tells me the other 400, <laughs> they're probably pretty whooped too. They're not too exhausted. Maybe they were the 400 husbands and dads, okay? And the others were, I don't know. But they're, they're <laughs> I'm going. But the 200, they're too exhausted. So he has only 400 of the 600. They find the Amalekites spread out over the valley there, and they're just having a party. They're drinking. I can only imagine some of them, maybe not all of them, some of them are starting to get drunk. And David, for over 24 hours, pursues them relentlessly, 
until they all are dead. But a very small percentage. Do you know how big that percentage is? 400. The exact number that, of men that David has. He killed all of them but 400. Now, if there were 1,000 Amalekites, and Scripture said, and David's men killed all 1,000 of them except 400, you would say, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't. He, he killed all of them but 400? No. Now, maybe 10,000. Okay. He, he killed all of them or 5,000 or maybe a couple of thousand, but there's a lot of people. 400 tired men who have a goal to get back what their enemy stole from them and give no mercy. And they, were, they all died except 400 young men. Now, I'm not sure why the prophet who's writing this focuses on the fact that there were 400 and that they were young men. Maybe there's a joke in there that I'm just not getting, but there's 400, and they're riding camels, and, and off they go, and they flee. So there's 400 Amalekites that survive. Now, here is what David does. David, not, number one, he not only gets back everything that the enemy took from him, but in addition to that, he, in essence, plundered the Philistines through the Amalekites. Do you see that? Because they had just raided the Philistines. All the Philistine army is gone. The Amalekites were pretty smart. I'll give that to them. There they are, strategizing, plotting, probably for days. They know this is going to happen. Okay, guys, you ready? We just got word they're leaving. Let's go now. And boom, town after town after town. Now, maybe they divided up into different raiding parties so they could get it done real quickly, and then they reconvened here. I don't know, but here they are with not only the plunder from Ziklag and a few other towns, but from the Philistines as well. So they got, they got everything back. In essence, they plundered their other enemy, in fact, their more, most formidable enemy, the Philistines, and... David has enough wealth in all of this that he wants to be a blessing to all the elders of various... And there's 13 towns that are mentioned. Some of them just say towns of the Jeremelites. So there's more than 13. Now, these are people that had blessed David and his four to 600 men because it grew a little bit over the years. And David's men had been protected by them. They had, these towns had given them supplies as he's fleeing from Saul, which was, well, kind of conspiracy, okay? They're, they're aiding David, who is a, a fugitive of King Saul, but they realized King David is not at fault here, and they were blessing him. So here's an opportunity David has, and he blesses them. Now, now understand this. Within four months... Because David was in Philistine territory for a year and four months, the scriptures say. And a little bit more, only a little bit over a year later did he go with them. So less than four months after his return from Ziklag, God says, go to Hebron and you'll be declared king. The very wealth, much of it that he had then given to these elders and these people to bless them back, those men now come to him at Hebron and say, David, you're the kind of, and, and I'm, I'm elaborating, filling in a little bit here. You're the man that we're looking for. And, and we read about this, and we're going to look at it probably a little bit next week, but they say, you're the, you're the man after God's own heart we're looking for. You're the one that had the prophecies of God that you would become king. He would raise you up from a shepherd to be our king, to shepherd us. And God finally brings Judah together. Seven and a half years later, a similar thing happens. David is not just coronated king over Judah. Now he's coronated seven and a half years later, king over Israel. So do you see what God did? Here is something so tragic. There's a pivotal moment, and then God super blesses him. And in doing that, paves the way for God to begin to fulfill the prophecy over David. 
because it was so unusual. Hey, you know, if David was not of the tribe of Benjamin and King Saul was, he was not in any way related to, to King Saul, except he had married his daughter, Michael. But while David was a fugitive, Saul took Michael and gave her to another man. Yeah. And so there's just like no possible way for David to ascend to the throne, but God promised it would happen, and God did it. God took such a horrible day, completely turned it around. How did he do it? That, you, you heard me say it, but David found strength in the Lord his God. How did he do that? In your bad hair day that's like the worst of the worst of the worst, how do you find strength? In, okay, it's going to be a lot worse than a bad hair day. I get that. But how do you find strength in God? We find this expression in, an, in one other place in Scripture. I want you to turn back with me in chapter 23. David is fleeing from King Saul. He is, he is he's, um, in fleeing. He's obviously hiding. But Jonathan... Like his BFF, Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. He is the crown prince. Jonathan, should Saul die, is supposed to become the next king. But Jonathan knows that David is supposed to become king. So he finds out where David is, and he meets up with him. Are you there? Chapter 23, David is discouraged running for his life day after day after day. And in chapter 23, starting with verse 15, it says this. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Very similar phrase to the one in chapter 30 that we just read. Now, this is what Jonathan says. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will, I will be second to you. Do you see the surrendering? He, Jonathan's supposed to be king, but he is more than willing to allow David to do that. And he's supporting him. There's no jealousy there. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horash. The first thing that Jonathan did to kind of breathe life into this discouraged David, fleeing for his life, is he said, do not be afraid. My father will not kill you. David needed to be reminded of this. Now, I don't know if, if, if you've ever been in that place where you are just so discouraged. You need someone to just start moving the cobwebs, the lies out of your mind. Because you're very vulnerable. When you're discouraged, when you're depressed, you're vulnerable. And I'm going to tell you this. The enemy will start speaking to you, and he will lie, lie, lie. Because lying is his native language, Jesus tells us in John 4, John 8. N lying is his native He's the father of lies. He's going to whisper lies. David, those prophecies, no, God's abandoned you. He's going to catch up to you. Saul's going to kill you. He's going to take your life. Jonathan perceives in David's despondency, you're not, David, Saul is not, my dad is not going to kill you. And David begins to blow the smoke away. Now, if you've ever seen an old-time war movie, maybe during the Civil War or maybe the Revolutionary War, the camera starts in the evening. The camera will pan the battlefield, and it's hard to see anybody, but the main thing that you see is the smoke. So with that analogy, the first thing Jonathan does is Jonathan begins to remove the smoke. 
because it's, it's blinding David. He can't see past the smoke. And I'm going to tell you this, that the first thing that he does then is he allays David's fears and he clears the smoke. Fear feeds on falsehoods. Fear feeds on falsehoods. It, it, it needs lies in order for it to be in your life. Remove the lies, you remove the fear. I truly believe this. Failure is not final. We can say to ourselves, you know what? I'm just too exhausted. I can't go on. I can't do it. I'm, ju I'm just going to sit down here and I'm going to give up. I can't. This is too hard. God's left me. God's word is not true. God doesn't love me, I guess, the way the Bible tells me. And we start believing these lies. And I'm sure David is struggling with this, and Jonathan just kind of begins to allay David's, he begins to blow the smoke away, clearing the battlefield so David can see. And I can remember, there have been times, I, I've had ziklags in my life, and I would imagine that most of you have as well. I remember one time in which I, I had left my, the, the UPS job that I had. They were going to require too many hours. And so I just said, God, what do you want me to do? And I felt like God said that I was to start a lawn business. So I started, I had done the lawn business to work my way through college. I'm now in seminary. I'm going to start a lawn business. So I started the lawn business, and then I told my wife, now, not exactly like that, but it, it, my wife felt that way, right? Um, I, I told her, I, 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 need to, I need to get a UPS. I, I need to start a lawn business. I know I can make money during this, doing this. And she's like, oh, you're going to start a business while you're in seminary? What? And so I, I did it for like six, no, eight, eight weeks. And it was just like at a standstill. It kind of just bumped up there real quickly, and then it stood there. But it wasn't making enough for me to support my family. And I'm just thinking, God, what are you going to do? I am at a point, Lord, if you don't do something like right now, and we're quickly digging into our savings, if you don't do something like right now, I'm going to have to quit school. I'm going to have to work another job full time. I won't have time for school. And I truly believed that for the last 10 years, 10 years, church, you were calling me along this plan that you've been working out that I, I guess you don't care about anymore. But I, I'm not going to be able to go to seminary anymore. I'm like halfway through my education and, and this, God, what? Maybe two-thirds of the way through. I felt like you've abandoned me. What am I going to do? I guess you don't want me to pastor. I guess for the last, you know, since I was 16, I'm, I'm about almost 28, I, I guess I've just missed you. I truly felt as if God had just said, nope, Mike, you're, you're just not mature enough. You're just not coming along. You know, I need to work with other men. I'm kind of kicking you to the curb. I felt like, God, where are you in this? Come on. And at that moment, God spoke to my heart. He doesn't do that like every day, but he spoke to my heart that day and said, Mike, give me two weeks. And can I tell you, two weeks to the weekend, it was actually 13 days to be exact, a little bit more than 13 days. And God did a miracle in which the property manager of that of university housing that we lived in came to me and said, because I prayed that on a Sunday morning, and 13 and a half days later, on a Saturday afternoon, he came to me and said, Mike, he shared the situation with me, and he said, I want you to give me a quote for your company to take care of the lawn here at the, uh, at the university housing. And God did a miracle. There, there's so much more to that, but I started believing lies. And God had to just speak right into the midst of that, hang on, Mike, and give me two weeks. And it allowed me, church, can I just say this? When you when you're feeling emotions that intense, those emotions lead you if you're not careful. They'll lead you. You'll start believing those lies. If you step back from the emotion of it all, which those two weeks allowed me, I began to realize those are lies. What am I doing? 
It's like this smoke, this haze just was coming over me. And God just had to begin to clear it away. God needs to do that in your life and just start blowing the smoke off your battlefield so you can see clearly. The second thing that we see Jonathan do is Jonathan then speaks truth into the situation. He speaks truth, and I'm going to tell you this. Whenever God speaks truth into your life, it ignites hope. Hope is so important. I want to speak to you about hope this morning. I might take a little bit, but I I want to speak to you about hope. The enemy knows this, that if he can, with a lie generally, but reach into your mind, into your heart, and rob you of hope, he will rob you of faith. When I was younger, I used to think that hope was wimpy, weak faith. I didn't want hope. You know, hope is like a stepping stone to faith. Now that I'm like traveling on faith, I don't need hope. Church, that, 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 that's not true whatsoever. Not true whatsoever. There's another man in the New Testament that God spoke hope to through a prophetic word. His name's Timothy. I want you to turn with me. <laughs> to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Some of you might learn something right here. This is not a passage that's generally preached on. I'm going to just for a few minutes, I want us to see something here. But Paul is reminding Timothy of some prophetic words that have been spoken over him. And he says it this way. He kind of towards the end of the chapter there, starting with verse 18 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Timothy, my son. Now, this is a son in the faith, not a literal son, but a son in the faith. I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies in the plural once made about you. And I'm going to just pause there for a moment. The instruction that Timothy is given is to set things in order. And specifically, there are men that because of something so very wrong in their heart, I'm going to call it selfish ambition. That's generally what it is. But they begin to teach false doctrine. They begin to lead people astray. And and in about two verses later, he actually names two people. But Timothy, who is functioning apostolically at this time, is in Ephesus. He is called to appoint elders in, in Ephesus and kind of help set things in order. And Paul says this. He says, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies that were once made about you. Now, we don't know what those prophecies are, but the instruction that he has given him to bring correction apparently fits hand and glove with these prophecies. Now, he goes on and he says this. So that by following them, them is in the plural, and therefore must refer to the prophecies and not the instruction, okay? All right. So that by following them, the prophecies, you might fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. I'm going to stop there, okay? These prophecies ignited a hope, whatever they were, In Timothy's life. (laughs) That hope seems to have to do with what he is actually doing. I'm going to guess it's probably having to do with functioning apostolically. And, and, And functioning apostolically, there's a lot of facets. There's evangelism, there's teaching, there's being a father in the faith, even though Timothy's a young man. And there's a lot of that goes on there. And Timothy is having to function here. And and now David, excuse me, Paul is saying, hey. You need to bring correction to these men. Probably most, if not all of them, are older than Timothy, and now he has to rebuke them. Try that one on for size. But it's in keeping with the prophecies that were, see, David, excuse me, see, Timothy, you can do this. You can do this. There is an anointing and there is an authority upon you to do this. I need you to reflect back on those prophecies and allow them to encourage you so that you can fight the good fight holding on to faith and a good conscience. I'm going to say it this way. Hope breeds faith. 
Hope breeds faith. Faith is not just this passive thing. Faith is active. It's alive. It is relational. But faith is rooted in hope. So that if the enemy robs you of hope, he robs you of faith. Do you remember what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says? It says this. Faith is being certain of what we hope for. That tells me that faith is rooted in hope. It says in Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who wait upon the Lord shall do what? Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, that Hebrew word that's translated those who wait upon the Lord is also and very fairly translated hope in the Lord. You can translate it either way. Wait or hope. And I'm going to tell you this, that if you are waiting upon the Lord, the only way that you can truly do it is because your hope is still steadfast in the Lord. Because if it's not, if it's being shaken, you're not going to wait upon the Lord. You're going to run from him. We need to have a stable hope. Hope is found and rooted in the promises that God has spoken to us. Always marching forward in triumphal procession. Always. That is a promise. That is a hope that he extends to us. Even in your ziklag, there is hope. David found strength in God in his ziklag. You know, I can remember when Meredith was pregnant with Katie Beth. So Katie was our first child. <clears throat> Meredith had had an accident years before. A portion of her pelvis got shattered into hundreds of pieces. The doctor said, you're, you're going to have to have all of your children C-section, which means a very limited number. And we believed God was going to give us a lot of kids. We, we have five, by the way. We have three grandchildren and another one on the way. We're excited about Hope is her name, by the way. And at that moment, Meredith, she is about halfway through her pregnancy, and she starts feeling pain in her pelvis. And this is concerning us. And it's like, is she going to have? Because the doctor had said, you know what, I'm going to look at these um, x-rays because I know you want to have your kids naturally because we were doing the Bradley method to have natural childbirth. And, and he said, ah, I'm going to have to look at them because I have a feeling that I'm going to need to do this C-section. That word was like the smoke on the battlefield. We're trying to blow the smoke away and we're trying, you know, when you're on a battlefield like that, once the smoke is cleared away and you can't see too well, how do you see? A lot of times they send up like a flare or flaming arrow and it drops right in the middle of the battlefield and you get a picture of who's who and where they are, right? You need light. And that promise is that like these prophecies for David are that hope. Jonathan reminded him, you will be king. And he speaks truth. Paul tells the Timothy, Allow these prophecies to ignite this hope in which you can ground your faith and a good conscience. And Meredith and I, we went to the elders of the church. It was a large church. We lived in Phoenix, Arizona at that time. And we went to the elders, and they anointed her with oil, and they prayed over her. And from that day on, there was no more pain. No more pain. The doctor looked at the x-rays, and it was like, I tell you what, you're, you're on the, the delivery table, and, 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 and if you start experiencing, and if I have any sense whatsoever that this isn't going to work, I'm going to open you up, and I'm going to take the baby. He did not have to do that. We had, she had all five of her children naturally, and in all honesty, with our fourth one, we were in the hospital for two minutes, 120 seconds, and the baby was born. No lie. Yes. So, Sarah Joy was born on a gurney, okay? <laughs> but God did a miracle there. 
And, and we went back j- just a few years ago, and she had a, a, another x-ray done. And the doctor looked at that, and he said, a totally different doctor, of course. And he says, so it looks like you broke your pelvis. And it's interesting just how they all formed together and solidified just perfectly. You can hardly tell that they were broken. As a matter of fact, I don't think you can tell that they were ever broken before, but I can. And I said, well, we know they were. I can't tell by the x-ray. But he said, yeah, it's just amazing how they just formed perfectly to form that birth canal and, you know, for your leg. And Wow, that's neat. So, you know what, doctor? Can, can we just share a testimony with you? So we had an opportunity to share a testimony of God's miraculous power. And, and we just this is just something God had birthed in our heart, okay? He doesn't do that for everyone. We just believed that God was going to bless us with the number of children. She wanted so much to be a mama. I wanted so much to be a dad. And, and God, we just felt like this is what God wanted to do. And no, I, we think God's going to heal her. And God just began to remind us of truth. He needs to remind you of truth this morning, church. Jonathan said, you will be king over Israel. Hope is the bedrock for faith. It's not a weak, wimpy faith. You don't have hope. You don't have faith. Guard your hope. So here's what Jonathan did. The third thing that he did, you know, you pr- if you have the NIV or the NASB, you don't see it. If you have the King James Version, you can. Jonathan said to David, excuse me, um, the author says about Jonathan that Jonathan helped David, excuse me, how does it say it? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to have to, uh, here we go. Jonathan, it says Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord. Now, you don't see that word hand. It's in the Hebrew, but you don't see it. It just translates, and Jonathan strengthened David in the Lord. When it actually says Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord. Why do you think that that idiom, that Hebrew idiom, strengthened his hand is there? His hand. Why not his foot? Why not his left shoulder? Why not his head? Why not his heart? Well, that would, that would have some meaning there. But he strengthened his hand. Why? Because the hand is what you use to do things. And here's Jonathan helped David strengthen his hands. Because you, it's not enough to just simply blow the smoke away, to ignite something, so that a fire, a light, so that you can see what's going on in the battlefield. But you've got to do something. Because you're about to enter a battle. You've got to rush forward and act on it. And that's exactly what David did, didn't he? He immediately inquired of the Lord. I got to know God's will. Because once God spoke, I believe that's when the men said, okay, I'm all in. When God speaks, we act. We say, yes, not my will, but yours be done. I can only imagine David, if he had not found strength in God, okay, we're just, I don't want to seek God. I don't want to I'm ready to just sit down and have my grand old pity party and throw in the towel, give up. I'm done, Lord. Thank you, but no thank you. But David found strength in God. And there's something that was ignited inside of him. And he said, I'm going to inquire. I'm going to seek God. And I'm going to just tell you right now that if you are down, if you're discouraged, If you feel like all of your hope has been robbed of you, the first thing you need to do is go back to that truth. What has God spoken to you? Go back to the truth. Always leading us in triumphal procession. God hasn't abandoned you. That's the devil speaking. Those are lies. God is with you. God is saying, get rid of the lies. Don't believe them. You're being led by your emotions. Hollywood says, yeah, follow your heart. Well, your heart's not always right. I'm going to follow the Lord. What has he spoken to me? Bring me back to the truth. And God will remind you of truth. He'll remind you of all of his precious promises. If God has spoken a prophetic word to to you, and leadership, others have said, yes, I I truly believe this is from God, then, then let God bring that to pass. But be encouraged as God has spoken to you his precious promises, okay? And let that reignite faith. 
And I'm going to tell you, faith is active. It's going to do something. He'll strengthen your hand. And you can see it throughout chapter 30. God just ignited this hope. And by faith, David said, we're going to do it. God said it. We're going to overtake him. Guys, come on. All 600 of you, I don't want anyone hanging out here. We're moving forward. And they were like, really? We've just been on a five, six-day journey. We'll do it. I'm all in. And they acted on it. And they kicked some Amalekite back end and pursued them and destroyed them. I was being gracious because there are ladies here, right? He was... He pursued them. They were wiped, except the very small percentage, 400. <laughs> Same exact number that David used. God used David's 400 men to do all of that. God will work through you supernaturally, church. Supernaturally. Because that's his heart. That's the nature of his grace. When, we, when David found strength in God, he humbled himself. Before, I am not going to be led by emotions. God this is your truth. He probably remembered. I remember when Jonathan encouraged me. What did he say? Get rid of the lies. Believe the truth and act on it. Yes. That's what I'm going to do today. And David found strength in God. David had a pivotal, pivotal moment. And when I was starting the pink touch-up business, you know the story. I'm just going to remind you. After two weeks, going door to door. My family's down south, four hours south in, in South Florida. And I'm up here trying to start the business. I've got all the equipment ready to go. Knock, knock, knock. Every dealership, every car dealership that I had gone to that said, hey, we'll try you out. They all said, uh, no, we, we're, we're fine. And for two weeks, door after door after door was closed. And I just said, God, you brought me all the way down here to be told no. How am I going to financially support my family? And God and I had a moment there. But it turned into a pivotal moment for me. Because God began to deal with some stuff in my heart. He called them old planks because he gave me a visual as I was seating, sitting down eating lunch. Literally, men stripping um, an old home and restoring it. Pulling some old planks out and... About a year later, when I drove by there, it was a gorgeous house. It's still there. And that's what God was doing in my heart. And God challenged me, and he called me to action. And I got up, and I said, you know what? I'm not giving up. And the next dealership that I went to and could speak with, the man said, sure, I'll let you try it out. That man, by the way, was the used car manager of Holler Oldsmobile, which is not there anymore, but back in the 90s it was. And God used Nader Malavi to not only allow me to do work there, but he, began, he was promoted to oversee the purchase of all vehicles for the Holler Classic dealership. There's like 16 of them. And I began to recondition their vehicles. Several years later, God opened a door and it opened a marvelous opportunity for my business. And it started with me having a crisis moment a, that turned into a pivotal moment that God then said, okay, here we go. And did something amazing. Can you stand with me? I believe that some of us are facing a very pivotal moment in your life and that God is wanting to clear the lies away. You're going to need to identify them, whatever they are, write them down, identify them, get rid of them, and then you need to be reminded of certain truths that God has already spoken to you and let that encourage you and ignite hope and faith. And then I'm going to encourage you, when we're done praying, you keep praying about this and say, God, so what do you want me to do now? What's the next step? Okay, Father, I just thank you that no matter how hard life can be for us at times, you have not given up. You've not left us. 
You love us with an everlasting love. You give us hope and a future. I'm asking right now, God, pursue us. Pursue us with that relentless love, that at times it seems reckless love, bursting through every barrier, no matter what stands in the way between us and you. Pursue us, Lord God, with that love and capture our hearts again. Don't let us go. The enemy wants to devour us, God. Lift us up. Give us hope again. Ignite faith. And do something so amazing, so marvelous in our lives, God. Because that is just who you are. Would you do this, God? We're your people. We are seeking to find strength in our God in this pivotal moment of our life. Help us, God. Steer us. And I just pray, God, that as you begin to lead us once again through this dark valley, lead us out. And I just pray, God, lead us into every good thing that you have in store for us. Don't let us fight you. Lead us right now. Speak hope into every single heart here tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We love you, Lord. I love each and every one of you guys. Thank you for those of you, those of you joining us online. I look forward to seeing you guys Wednesday evening. That'll be here. And I love you. God bless you.